Hey, it's Andrew. The 2023-24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures has just been announced. Speakers include Sadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezukumotato. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary-arts.org. Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we went into the vault and we're bringing you a lecture from the 2003-2004 season of Portland Arts and Lectures, featuring renowned memoirist and short story writer Tobias Wolfe. Best known for his memoirs This Boy's Life and In Pharaoh's Army, Wolf has also published award-winning fiction, mostly short stories, and in this lecture, he is discussing his 2003 novel Old School, which was a finalist for the 2004 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. In his lecture, Wolf explores the balance and conflict between writing memoir and writing fiction, the push and pull between autobiography and imagination, or as he says, the pressure of the personal life on the imagined life that we write. It's a funny lecture, I LOL'd multiple times, and Wolf offers an inviting mix of personal anecdote and analysis of influence, like Leo Tolstoy and Flannery O'Connor in this ideal, something for everyone kind of talk. After Old School, the novel he discusses in this 2003 lecture, Wolf went on to publish Our Story Begins, New and Selected Stories in 2008, and in 2014, he was awarded the Stone Award for Lifetime Literary Achievement from Oregon State University. And in 2015, President Barack Obama presented Tobias Wolf with the National Medal of the Arts for his contributions as an author and educator. We'll join former literary arts executive director Carrie Hoops, who introduces Tobias Wolf. I never really had a grasp of anything until I became a reader, said Tobias Wolf in an interview. When I was in my teens, I became a, became a devoted student of reading and of understanding books I was reading. But before then, I feel like I lived like an animal, really, unable to piece sense out of what happened to me, unable to learn from it so I wouldn't have to keep doing it. And books gave me a moral order, gave me a kind of code. Tobias Wolf decided at about the same time, at the age of 14 or 15, that he was going to be a writer. Although, in fact, he was already writing stories and giving them to his friends to turn in for extra credit in their English classes. <laughs> when one of those friends remarked offhandedly that Wolf should be a writer, his friend's remark, Wolf recalled later, lodged in my spirit. Wolf has gone on to an extraordinary career as a novelist, short story writer, and master of the memoir. This Boy's Life, a memoir, is a truthful story. The narrator, in his youth, had been devoted to the lie that conveyed a deeper truth. The boy wrote letters of recommendation for himself, as he said, in the words my teachers would have used if they had known me as I knew myself. <laughs> and of the boy who lived in the letters, the splendid phantom who carried all my hopes, it seemed to me I saw, at last, my own face. This boy's life has been described as an extended meditation upon selfhood. The 1993 film version started, starred Robert De Niro, Ellen Barkin, and Leonardo DiCaprio. In his second memoir, In Pharaoh's Army, Memories of a Lost War, 
Wolf documents the continuation of his journey from prep school dropout to Green Beret in Vietnam. It was a finalist for the National Book Award, and his early novella, Barracks Thief, won the prestigious Penn Faulkner Award. Wolf's collection of lyrical and meticulously crafted short stories include In the Garden of North American Martyrs, Back in the World, and The Night in Question, Stories. His new novel, Old School, is about the process of becoming a writer. According to Wolf, it is also about the idea of writing as a way of somehow trumping the power of class, of solving one's vexing worries about identity and belonging, which of course writing doesn't solve. Tobias Wolf is a professor of English and creative writing at Stanford University. For more than 30 years, he has been writing work that reveals relentless curiosity, moral industry, and wit. His sentences, with their perfect pitch, reveal the gesture, the odd angle of vision that in turn reveals the ordinary in its deeper and stranger aspects. There is a need in us for exactly what literature can give, Wolf once wrote, which is a sense of who we are, beyond what data can tell us, beyond what simple information can tell us, a sense of the workings of what we used to call the soul. People go where they can find that. They need to find that. In this secular and material culture, it's a kind of oasis. Please help me welcome Tobias Wolf. Good evening. I have noticed when uh, people have uh, discussed this latest book of mine, Old School, a novel, that uh, helplessly almost uh, they tend to discuss it in autobiographical terms. And I have protested, I have mewed, I have squealed uh, for the independence of imagination and the necessity of separating fiction from reality, uh, as I have tried to do with more or less success in my memoirs. Uh, but I have to admit that to some extent and to an important extent, this book has been filled with memories and with my sense of the life uh, that I have lived as I have known it that indeed a lot of my uh, fiction has been driven by memory and my remembered experience. It isn't in any case a rule uh, that one must write this way, though many do. I have been uh, forced to think about how this came about for me. Uh, to account for it in some way. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight, is this phenomenon in my work and in the work of many others uh, of the pressure of the personal life on the imagined life, the fiction that, you, that, that we write. Uh, and I'm going to try to trace a kind of pattern in this, but there's always uh, uh, a warning and trying to look back and seeing how you made different choices and what changed you and what inclined you this way or that way. I'm thinking of that poem of Robert Frost's. Uh, probably half of you in this room have used a quote from it in your yearbook picture. Um, uh, the road not taken. 
and you know, it's celebrated as an anthem of individuality, the uh, celebration of, of, of those who march to the beat of a different drummer. Uh, you know, uh, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Well, if we look back at that poem, and this is, I think, the most misunderstood poem in the English language. If we look back on this poem, he talks about walking out one day and choosing a fork in a path. And he says, you know, he looked down one as far as he could. But as for that, he says, the passing there had warned them really about the same. He tells us that in the first verse of his poem. As for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. In other words, there's something kind of arbitrary about the fork that he takes. But later on, he says, I shall be telling this with a sigh someday ages and ages hence, how two roads met in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. This is not a poem about taking the hard way. This is a poem about how we lie when we get old. <laughs> so, I am in the territory of lies right now. I'm looking back and trying to figure out where one path led and another didn't. And so one has to be aware of these things. However, I want to talk a little bit about how I began to, to read and write. Uh, questions of influence always come into the writing process. And it is normal for writers, when asked about those who influenced them, to reach for the stars. Well, it was my first encounter with being a nothingness that really uh, uh, excited me with the love of literature. Probably not, though, really. Uh, I will tell you honestly that I was an indifferent boy, a, a boy who, who was, for all practical purposes, a wild child, nonverbal, raised by wolves, uh, <laughs> until I discovered a series of books by a writer that only the most infirm of you will remember, named Albert Payson Teryun. Albert Payson Teryun wrote books only from the point of view of collie dogs. <laughs> he wrote, Lad, a dog, Grey Dawn, and so on. And he had, in fact, about 50 dogs himself, collies, all of them. And he managed to write, before he died, a novel from the point of view of every one of those dogs. <laughs> He referred to himself in these stories as simply, which I loved, the master. <laughs> and in the, you know, the way Homer talks about the wine-dark sea, the master would always be surrounded by this great flock of collies, which he always referred to in the Homeric fashion as the tawny swarm. <laughs> You can see pictures of Turyun surrounded by his collies if you, if you want to look it up. He was probably certifiable, Turyun. <laughs> but I loved, I loved those books. Uh, 
and they were the first things that addicted me to reading. They were my great uh, uh, influence in a way because they're the, they're, those are the books. The, the great influence of any writer is that first book, that first set of books that keeps you up at night when you're not supposed to be up anymore. Uh, that makes you tired in the morning and itchy to get home so you can open that book again. And that was Teryun for me. And from that, my mother very cleverly exploited this and began to feed me books uh, uh, like a, a, a dope dealer at the edge of a playground, uh, <laughs> a, a way of bringing me in. It was obviously, you know, early drug therapy, keep the kid quiet. Uh, and she, and, and I, I will, be forever grateful to my mother for the books she fed me. She gave me uh, Bible stories. She gave me a, a, a version of the, a, a, a child's version of the Iliad, which I read again and again and again once I got caught. Um, and from there, Jack London, with his wonderful animal stories, his tales of the frozen north, and, and O. Henry, with his great trick endings, the common theme, or the common, uh, what I found in these books again and again was a, was a way out, I guess, of the way that I actually lived. Uh, this ordinary life that I led, very common to kids of my age, uh, and uh, it gave me a vision of other lives, a kind of great, es a great escape, really. And this was the essential uh, part of my reading and my idea of writing. When Carrie was introducing me, she referred to an episode when I was young, when I used to write stories, as I did indeed write stories for friends of mine to turn in for extra credit. I had so many. Uh, I could hardly use them all myself. Uh, and. Just last night, uh, I happened to run into two people in Seattle who uh, uh, were sisters of a friend of mine who I gave one of those stories to, and uh, the Wilkinsons. And uh, Les called me years ago when This Boy's Life came out and said, uh, I hear you've written a memoir, and I hear I'm in it, and I hear I'm not going to like it. Uh, and I said, no, no, that's not true. You'll love it. And I sent him a copy, and then he, he wrote, Back and we talked, and one day he said, you know, you gave me a story once about uh, um, uh, th th that I turned in. And I said, well, what story was that? And he said, it was a story about uh, a family of Italian acrobats. And then I remembered it. I was <laughs> writing about what I knew. Uh, and it all came back. It was a family of Italian acrobats who felt exploited by the patriarch of the family and so took out, in best Hitchcockian fashion, an enormous insurance policy on him and then drained the pool that he dived into at the end of his, <laughs> of his act. So he recounted all that to me and I, I glowed with the memory of it. And I said, so how did that go anyway? And he said, I, I said, what'd you get on this story? He said, I got a C. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, that's not a C story, that's an A story. And he said, well, that's what I thought. So I protested the grade. I went up to our English teacher afterwards and 
And, uh, and uh, I said, well, what did she say? And she said, well, you're right. That is an A story, but you didn't write that story. Jack Wolf wrote that story. <laughs> And all those years later, 25, 30 years later, I had this flush of pride. I thought she knew my work, you know. <laughs> and indeed, it was uh, about that year that this episode that Carrie uh, uh, mentioned, in which a boy told me I should be a writer, he had a vested interest because he wanted me to keep writing for him. Uh, but it was very strange. I was up in Alaska in Anchorage talking to a uh, uh, meeting with a kind of community workshop about, uh, oh gosh, eight, nine years ago. And for some reason, someone said, who was the first person who told you you should be a writer? And it was that boy who was a freshman at Concrete High School, the same way I was, two 14-year-old boys. He knew no more about being a writer than I did, but he knew to tell me that I should be a writer. And, uh, and, in, and it was the first time, though, I wrote stories and read them, and uh, I never really connected the two things. I thought writers were really so another species, almost. And when he said that, something clicked in me. And again, be wary of these frost moments. But if there was a light bulb that ever went off, that was it. And for some reason or other, when I was talking to this group of like 10, 12 people in a living room, um, I used his name. It was the first time I had ever actually done that and probably shouldn't have. And after we were all, we had some, eat, some uh, eats and we were all dispersing and a woman came up to me and said, uh, that was my father. And I said, that was your father? She said, yes. And uh, I said, well, whatever happened to him? And she said, well, he moved up here to Alaska in his 20s and uh, he, w he homesteaded, but every time anybody got within about 10 miles of him, or us, he would move again. And she said, I guess somebody told him he should be a hermit. <laughs> anyway, these were the, the writers that I patterned myself after London and early on, and then O'Henry, oh, and, uh, and as, I, as I grew older, I, I grew an affection for James Jones and Eric Maria Remarque, Fitzgerald, and especially Hemingway. I admired the, the, the force of their writing uh, so much that I copied it, and especially Hemingway. In fact, all the, all the young literary men that I knew were influenced by Hemingway. Uh, and there were a great many in the school I went to, which is very much like the school that I describe in this book. Um, who were literary, who lusted after uh, uh, books and writers and wanted to belong to that world. Um, I, I, I'm giving a talk tonight and not a reading, but I want to read a brief excerpt from this novel to give an example of the kind of uh, uh, way in which we found ourselves under the spell of certain writers uh, in, in the, in the uh, uh, in the story of this novel, as, as indeed happened when I was a boy, different writers would come to this school, luminaries, Robert Frost came, William Golding, people like that. And, uh, and we would compete for private audiences with these writers by submitting work of our own. 
uh, or at least we had these literary competitions, that's how I remember it. And, um, and we had our literary magazine. This is a novel, of course, not a memoir, but I am now talking about uh, one of the, the narrator is here thinking about one of his competitors uh, for this audience with Robert Frost, who's about to visit right after Kennedy's election. And his name is Jeff Purcell, and this is about imitation. Jeff Purcell was known as Little Jeff because we had another Jeff Purcell in our class, his cousin, Big Jeff. In fact, Little Jeff wasn't little and Big Jeff wasn't big, just bigger than Little Jeff, who resented Big Jeff, partly, no doubt, for inadvertently imposing this odious nickname on him. Little Jeff was a friend of mine, so like his other friends, I called him Purcell. Purcell habitually kept his arms folded across his chest like a Civil War general in a daguerreotype. This bellicose pose suited him. Under his bristling crew cut, he cultivated a sulfurous gift for invective and contempt. He even flouted the timeless protocol of pretending to admire the work of us, his fellow editors. At one of our meetings, he declared that a story of mine called Suicide Note read as if it had been written after the narrator blew his brains out. <laughs> Purcell came from a rich social family, but you wouldn't have guessed it from his stories and poems. Or maybe you would. His subject was the injustice of relations between high and low. He had written a ballad about a miner being sent deep into the earth to perish in a cave-in while the mine owner hand-feeds filet mignon to his hunting dogs, cooing to them in baby talk. And his last troubadour piece was an epistolary story in which a general writes congratulatory letters to various grieving women after getting their husbands and sons slaughtered. You may rejoice for your fallen hero, knowing that his heart was perforated for our glorious cause. And you and your little ones can rest assured that his missing head, wherever it may be, is filled with the pride of sacrifice and radiant memories of the homeland for which he died so eagerly. This story was, I felt sure, inspired by a certain passage in a farewell to arms. But when it came up for consideration, I bit my tongue and let it go. Anyway, I myself was in debt to Hemingway, up to my ears. So was my roommate, Bill. We even talked like Hemingway characters, though in travesty, as if to deny our discipleship. That is your bed, and it is a good bed. And you must make it, and you must make it well. <laughs> or, today is the day of meatloaf. The meatloaf is swell. It is swell, but when it is gone, the not having meatloaf will be tragic, and the meatloaf man will not come anymore. 
All of us owed someone, Hemingway or Cummings or Kerouac, or all of them and more. We wouldn't have admitted to it, but the knowledge was surely there because imitation was the only charge we never brought against the submissions we mocked so cruelly. There was no profit in it. Once crystallized, consciousness of influence would have doomed the collective and necessary fantasy that our work was purely our own. And so it is. Writers are very, very reluctant to admit that they owe anyone anything, that they have grown from any soil but that of their own originality. But the truth is that, like the boy in this story, I and every writer I know has grown from imitation. It's a good thing and an essential thing. We do not learn anything except by imitation. How did we learn to talk except by observing that by these big clunky creatures who are moving around us when they make certain sounds get certain results? Uh, that it's better to be upright than down on the ground where you can get stepped on. There's an aspiration upwards that we have, and it's from imitating. Everything we do, we imitate. When we see Wynton Marsalis play his trumpet, it is so effortless. And yet we all understand that that effortlessness was a result of him watching Louis Armstrong for years and years and years. If you watched Ken Burns, I don't think that more than five sentences could come out of Wynton Marsalis's mouth without him mentioning Louis Armstrong. Uh, and the process of, of, of doing scales and playing in that register before he found his own. Uh, and yet, as effortless as it seems, when we see Wynton Marsalis play the trumpet, we know that if we go home and buy a trumpet, we're not going to be able to go into our living room and play that way. If we see the Martha Graham troupe dance and move effortlessly around the stage, we know that if we went home and tried that stuff in our living room after the, you know, after the uh, performance, we'd be in traction. We understand all that about everything but writing, oddly enough. Every, we all think when we, ha and I'm, you know, when I was young, I felt the same way. When we read that, some of that beautifully clear, lucid, limpid Hemingway and prose in Indian camp or A Way You'll Never Be or The Killers, we think to ourselves, you know, well, I know all those words. <laughs> I can do that. And, and similarly, whenever we read a book we really love, there's something odd about, about writing that makes us think that we could do that too if we just went home and did it. Actually, a friend of mine, Ryan Hansen, told me a very funny story a few years ago about playing golf. Uh, he's a golf fanatic, and he'll play with anybody who'll play with him, and so people will fix him up. And uh, so Ron was, uh, Ron was playing a few holes of golf with a couple of doctors. One of the doctors he knew, the other he didn't, and the doctor he didn't know was a brain surgeon that he was playing with. And uh, 
as they were going around, as they were playing, the doc, the brain, the brain surgeon, the guy he didn't know, kept saying to him, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. I've just never found the time. But um, I'm trying to clear a few months. I have this novel that I'm going to write. That, and, you know, he told him how amazing this novel was going to be when he wrote it. And um, finally, Ron, in the fifth hole or so, turned to this fellow and said, you know, I've always wanted to operate on a brain. Um, I haven't had the time but I'm trying to clear a couple of weeks. That's what he said, he said. We always, you know, again, we're back to a frost moment here. But uh, I will give Ron credit for saying that. Uh, but it is, it is such a, uh, a long process of, uh, of uh, apprenticeship, and apprenticeship means imitation, it means learning, it means accepting. Uh, it means accepting the, the, the position of a student in a way and, 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 and learning all that. I found myself in my early years apprenticing myself to Masters of the Fantastic, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, they weren't fantastic to themselves, but they seemed so to me. Homer, I would write things in the Homeric way about warriors in Greece, or I would write things uh, about wolves and things about gold miners in Alaska. Uh, later, I knocked off, and I think quite respectably, um, you know, James Jones and, and uh, Eric Maria Remarque and writers like that. Later, Borges and Pynchon. I mean, who can not be tempted as a young reader by his wonderful description of a squad of men being formed heroically on a darkened street in New York to descend into the sewers to hunt the giant white alligators who have been flushed down the toilets of, of, of children who have gotten them as pets and grown tired of them. And, and then later, I found in my 20s I discovered Tolstoy, and I read everything I could that I could get my hands on of Tolstoy. Anna Karenina and War and Peace, the Cossacks, the great short stories, his reportage, he was a young officer at Sevastopol during the Korean War. And one of the things that really struck me about Tolstoy was the epic sweep of his work. You all know it, uh, but the knowledge that he had of so many things, of military life, of farming, of horses. He knew a lot about horses, mathematics, woodworking, and different philosophies and spiritualities. You'll remember in War and Peace how Pierre wanders his life looking for the spirituality that is true, that will, that will take him the true way. And that really caught me. And it seems to have, again, a kind of fantastic quality to it. But then as I read on in Tolstoy and became very, very interested in him and started reading biographies of him by Troyat and others, I discovered how deeply personal that work was. Uh, he had, like, like his character Lev in, in Anna Karenina, a... Uh, uh, a brother uh, who was sickly. And he imagines for that brother in Anna Karenina one of the most beautiful scenes and touching scenes in all literature. Uh, 
and it's quiet, and it's not a sweeping panoply of a battlefield. Lev's brother is tubercular and, and quiet and, and withdrawn. And Lev and Kitty, his wife, notice that he has a powerful attraction for their governess, who's a very beautiful and charming young woman and a good young woman, who has also, they see, an attraction for Lev's brother. So they arrange one day to leave them alone while they're mushroom picking. And then Tolstoy, the novelist, allows us this quiet moment with the two of them for what we expect is going to be a declaration of love on each side. What happens? They're out together and Lev says to the governess, it's a perfect day for picking mushrooms. It's a beautiful day. And she says, yes, it couldn't be a better day. And he said, and the party is very agreeable, wouldn't you say? And she says, yes, we couldn't ask for better company. And they get caught in this small talk and they can't get out of it. And everyone who reads that knows exactly what's happened to them. And it is so tragic and so oddly comic in the worst sense of comic and human. And it is so personal, it is so beautiful in that way. And that is what really brings, it is that little detail of lived human life that really makes that novel uh, come, you know, stick to our ribs forever. Uh, there is in, uh, uh, as I read on, I began to discover uh, uh, that Tolstoy kept a very meticulous diary all his life, a journal, and his wife Sonia did as well. And they, if you can imagine such a thing, and these were honest diaries, unlike the kind I would keep, would, would read these to each other at night. And Tolstoy was a philanderer. So can you imagine him reading these things to his wife at night, and, and yet she stayed with him through all of this. But they are rigorous kind of self-scrutinies. And one of the things that interested me in discovering this was uh, his hatred of his own greed. And he talked about how in, in, in one of his entries, uh, a neighbor of his went bankrupt. And the first thing he thought of was, good, now I can get over there and buy that wood of his that I have been after at a really good price. And he thought, and he wrote in his diary, what, an, what a terrible thing that when your neighbor has a misfortune that you should see it as your good fortune. And out of that, he wrote this extraordinary story called Master and Man, which takes place during a blizzard. And a landowner has just heard that his neighbor has gone bankrupt. And he has coveted his neighbor's wood. And he hustles his his hired man, his footman, Nikita, into a sled and they go out into this blizzard because he wants to beat some other neighbors who he thinks will be competing for this wood. And they get lost. And he drives this poor man deeper and deeper into this blizzard until they are utterly lost and with catastrophic consequences. And this story emanates 
from the very soul of Tolstoy, from a kind of self-scrutiny. And when I connected those two things, the entry in his diary with that story, I was deeply, deeply struck by that. Uh, he himself was a, was a terrible gambler, Tolstoy. And indeed, he was, when he was a young officer, he, uh, he lost so much at cards one night that he lost a whole wing of his house. And 129 wagons showed up at the Tolstoy estate, Yasnia Poliana, and dismantled a wing of the house and took it away on carts to another house. And Tolstoy has a wonderful moment in War and Peace when young Count Rostov has to explain to his father his terrible losses at gambling. And you can see, you can begin to see the pressure of that lived life on the fiction throughout. And I think that, again, that isn't a question of a light bulb going off, but I began to feel the I began to feel the possibilities, I suppose, of, a, of, of, of making use of these things. I had the sense, to put it in a kind of strange economic terms, of the way in which a writer could spend his life writing, in another sense, spend it on the page, that is, use it on the page, and at the same time, save it. That is, save it in its essential nature, and then save it in the sense of his spirit as well, by putting his spirit under a kind of scrutiny that made it amenable to change. And uh, this, this opened up a way of, of thinking about writing to me that has been immensely valuable. Uh, Hemingway himself, I think, uh, is another example of this. He clouded our vision of him so much with bluster. And it was a bluster that I loved when I was young. I think uh, so many of the young men of, of uh, uh, my generation, for better or worse, and I suppose, in fact, mostly worse, uh, found him a kind of pattern of manhood, the the endless fishing and hunting and following of wars. And I remember when I was about 14, reading uh, Life magazine and seeing one of those great big, beautiful black and white pictures that they used to have at the end of the magazine, a picture of Hemingway leaving a prize fight in Madison Square Garden with Marlena Dietrich on his arm. And I remember thinking what a great thing it was to be a writer when I, when I saw that. And that was really, in all honesty, the kind of thing that attracted me to the writing life is at least as much as the writing itself. And later that falls away. Now what are you left with at the end? You're left with these unbelievably beautiful stories, these tender, humane stories and these great novels, especially the early ones, I think. Um, and what I found in rereading him, uh, what I continue to find in rereading him, uh, is not this tough, adventurous, self-sufficient, taciturn kind of cartoon of a man that uh, he is often seen as, and indeed helped us to see him as, but uh, its fragility 
that is the real subject of those stories. It's vulnerability and human weakness. If you read the stories in In Our Time, for example, I don't think there's a story in there in which the narrator is whole or the main character is whole. They're, they're uh, you know, in, in another country, the young man is going to uh, constantly try to get better at this uh, strange machine that's going to cure his wound that he's had in war and all these other people are trying to get cured and you know it's futile and you suddenly begin to understand that wounds once they're suffered do not go away they are not cured the same way with cross-country snow where Nick can't telemark because of his knee or that great last story uh, uh, Big Two-Hearted River where where he has to order his life according to certain rituals in order to hold it together when he's fishing and hunting. It's not about fishing and hunting. It's about holding a life together that's been bruised and wounded. It's a, it, these are documents of incredible uh, uh, nakedness, really, and, and openness. Jake Barnes in The Sun Also Rises is a wounded man and an, an enduringly wounded man. And that is Hemingway's great subject, actually, is not strength, it's weakness. Um, and to see that emanating out of his own experience and informing his fiction so truly was deeply instructive to me. Uh, so too, of all people, uh, for someone who in some ways fetishized experience when I was young, Flannery O'Connor, think of her. Now, Flannery O'Connor, lived pretty much all her life, except for one year that I know of, on a farm in Milledgeville, Georgia. And what, what could she know of life, one thinks? She knew, seemed to have known everything. Uh, and yet the patterns of these stories are very much the same if you think about it. Um, there's a, a very pious mother, loving, simple, maddening to her daughter, or in one case, everything that rises must converge her son. Uh, there's usually a handy woman around who is equally pious and full of pious axioms uh, to live by, and there's usually a shiftless handyman around. The men do not do well in, in her fiction. And then there's an angry intellectual daughter uh, you'll remember in Revelation that wonderful scene in the doctor's waiting room when the daughter actually attacks a smug uh, precept-spouting woman with the words, go back to hell, you old warthog, where you belong. Well, this is Flannery O'Connor. And she spent her whole life on this farm and managed to expand her range of vision, I think, to the whole world. She made a very limited life unlimited by the power of her meditation on the life that she observed. She got to see the whole thing. Experience isn't a question of going out and doing things. It's a question of looking at what's around you. It's a question of a quality of alertness and vigilance to what is already before your eyes, not what you must somehow labor to put before your eyes. And that was one of the great things that I think Flannery O'Connor has to teach any young writer. It was this sort of thing 
I suppose, that led me to write autobiographically at all um, in this boy's life later in Pharaoh's Army, though I never really intended to write autobiographically. But once begun, uh, it, it had a force of its own. And obviously, the, the memoir form commits you to a certain relationship with the reader in which you cannot say that which did not happen. I mean, I wrote both my memoirs in the uh, knowledge that the people I lived through those things with were alive and would also be reading the memoir and would have their own opinion about it and would certainly let me know if I had said something that happened that didn't. But there are obviously uh, points where one must uh, disagree about interpretations of what things mean and what people were like. Uh, in that way, in writing this, I learned not to be a slave to memory. But it was strange that in, in beginning to write this boy's life, I found uh, all kinds of things in my past that I had completely forgotten. I had forgotten, for example, that I had changed my name to Jack for six years out of emulation of Jack London. Uh, I had, I had forgotten that I, in fact, routinely used to change my history when we moved from place to place because I could. And I'd forgotten this whole business of the letters of recommendation that I forged for myself. One puts these things to one side at a certain point in life. All this, but all memories are connected to other memories, and this opened up something to me. Uh, I didn't use everything that I remembered in this boy's life. And I'll tell you one thing I left out, because sometimes the truth is just too weird to use. When I went off to this boarding school, my father insisted that I change my name back to the name that he had given me, the name I go by now, and give this Jack stuff up. Well, when I got to this boarding school, there was a boy there named Jack Wolf, if you can imagine such a thing. And Jack Wolf was a champion swimmer. He just creamed everybody when he swam against them. He was just uh, a, 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 you know, a juggernaut of a swimmer. And of course, his exploits were duly recorded in the school newspaper. And I found myself cutting these stories out and sending them home. Well, that's something that I thought that if I had ever actually said in a memoir, no one would believe me. This had to, except Jack Wolf, uh, no one would, no one would be, no one would believe it. So there's a, a kind of level of discretion you have to use in 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 memory. But it certainly has uh, showed up again in in this book, uh, old school. This last book that I've read, I dipped my bucket in the well of memory. No doubt, it, though, it is a novel. Uh, Robert Frost appears as a character, who did appear as a character in the school I went to. Uh, Ayn Rand, who did not, and Ernest Hemingway. Uh, yet there's so much invented. There's, a, there's a, uh, a kind of dance of memory and invention that I am very comfortable with. But, 
but uh, questions uh, that memory press on, on me from the past, things about class, being a scholarship boy from the West, finding myself in this extremely rarefied atmosphere, uh, the uncertainty of self that that gave rise to, uh, the appeal of literature as a means of transcending these questions of class and, and reach and attaining a kind of position outside it. All that has been haunting me for years and has led very much to the writing of this. It's a, and so that memory and experience has become for me a very uh, 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 important element even in my imaginative life uh, in, in, in telling a story that is for me urgent and true. There's a wonderful book by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy. And at the end of that book, he describes a novel that he has been thinking of writing for years that I love the idea of. He says, it will be about a man who leaves home, leaves, sells the pearl of great price, goes out to embark on the great adventure of exploration. And he has been out on the ocean and his ship has been dismasted. He's blown around for months like Odysseus. He hardly knows where he is. And all of a sudden, a terrible storm blows him up on a, on a beach. His ship is wrecked. He barely manages to swim to shore with a knife in his teeth. And as he climbs ashore and goes abroad on this strange terra incognita on which he's found himself, he discovered this, he's done all this simply to arrive back home. He's landed on his own shores. And in a way, I have felt that my own progress as a writer has mirrored that journey. Uh, or in the wonderful lines with which T.S. Eliot has, uh, T.S. Eliot concludes his poem, The Four Quartets, uh, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Thank you. That was Tobias Wolf at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for Portland Arts and Lectures on December 2nd, 2003. This has been Literary Arts The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.